0: You're listening to Season 3 of the Queen's Memory Podcast. My name is Jiefei Yuan and I'm the Queen's Memory Curator. In this season, our major-minor voices, we feature stories from our neighbors of Asian descent in Queens, New York. Too often, these voices are deemed minor, as in, of a minority. But in our borough, these voices are a major force. One in four borough residents identifies as Asian-American. The stories they tell reflect their ongoing struggles and triumphs. They are our stories, a vital part of who we are, and together they represent a snapshot of our ever-changing neighborhoods as they are now.
1: We do need to know about different groups within the Asian American communities. We need to go even deeper to acknowledge them and to bring them all together.
2: That was Matulika Kondawo, the professor from CUNY I talked to in the first episode. She reminded us of the importance of bending together, especially in the face of adversity. The whole can be greater than the sum of its parts listening back to all eight episodes I realize we've created a multilingual memory book that speaks to how far we've come as a borough and how far we still have to go this memory book would not be complete without hearing from the producers themselves whose deep connections to their communities allowed unique access and intimate encounters in this last episode of the season We bring them together to discuss the making of our major minor voices. This is Melody Tao. Let's listen. Eugenia remembers the day she left Korea.
0: That was my first time getting on an airplane.
3: Together, they headed to their grandmother's apartment in Queens, where they're going to live.
0: Every time you open it, it creaks. So it's like, creak, and then it slams behind you. So much of the immigrant experience is not talking about what you go through, you just get by. You just survive. For the Queen's Memory
3: Project, this is Heidi Shen. I'm a journalist, an audio producer, and a writer. I was born in Seoul, South Korea, and I immigrated to the States um, when I was really little and grew up in New York. In my work, I often tell stories around issues of immigration and race and things like that. But specifically for this project, um, my own grandmother had passed away a few years ago, and my dad had as well. And, you know, I realized since then that I had all these questions that I never really got to ask them, um, especially about like our earliest days in America. And then here, there's this great opportunity to like hear from other Korean American families and to hear their stories, um, basically, like to hear from someone else's harmony. You know, of course, like in many ways, these stories are unique to the families who are telling them, but you know, in some ways, they were really familiar to me too. It was like hearing my own family story. Also, this was a project that I could work on with my own mom, so it gave me like a reason to pick up the phone to call my mom and like ask her about a lot of things that we never talked about, um, and that I wanted to talk about. And so you, you you actually hear the voice of my mom in the Korean episode. Uh, she's the Korean narrator there. In the second half of my episode, um, the two sisters go back to their grandmother's house. The episode closes out with this song, this prayer that one of the sisters, Jin sings. And, you know, like in their daily lives, these sisters now, they, they don't really speak much Korean. But there is this this one prayer, this song that, that Jin has decided to teach her daughters. And not just teach to them, they sing it every day. Every day before every meal, and it was actually a song that I knew as a child—that you know—that my parents had taught me, um, but that I hadn't heard or sung in I don't know twenty-something years. When when she started to sing that song, you know, during our interview, I I mean, I I actually started to cry. One of the things that really surprised me about this project, you know, I was, like, really eager to go back to Queens. You know, I, I grew up in New York, but uh, but I've moved away since, and I was really eager to, like, go back and see all of my favorite spots. I pictured it being full of the same, like, youth group fans that I took, you know, to all the Korean church meetings and all my friends' parents who own dry cleaners and fruit stands and things like that. But I, I, think, I think what I realized in the midst of all of my interviews was um, that, that that Queens that I knew from when I was a kid, like it's it's not there anymore. And so like producing this podcast for me was really special because it, it felt like creating and exploring like a time capsule.
4: All parents want a better life for their children. But what if giving them a better life meant living away from them? Dolma is a housekeeper and babysitter who lives in Queens. Dolma spends her days caring for other people's children, but hasn't seen her own daughter in
5: 10 years. Near Roosevelt Avenue train station in Jackson Heights, there's a building so close to the seven that it shakes every time a train goes by. The barbershop on the second floor is named Pasang Striking Style after its owner, Pasang
6: Sherpa. He's also a poet. I crossed hundreds of ridges to get here. When I got here, I thought I'd won, but also i had lost.
5: For the Queen's Memory Podcast, I'm Peter Gill.
4: And I'm Shraddha Ghale.
5: Hi, my name is Peter Gill. I was born to American parents, but I grew up in Nepal. I think Nepalese in in the U.S. um, have amazing stories to tell. Nepal is a country that depends very, very much on income from people working abroad. And the reason for this is, you know, is a painful one. I mean, Nepal's economy is very poor. The most powerful moment for me was when I was talking with uh, the nanny, Dolma about her daughter, and she broke down crying. I was just thinking, you know, she has gone 10 years without seeing her baby daughter. I mean, her daughter was two when she left, and one of the days that I visited her, she was celebrating her 12th birthday over Zoom. And I can't imagine what it's like to go a decade without seeing your child at that age. The fact that she is here working very hard, you know, for her daughter, I mean, she sees it really as... It's it's a path to a better life for her daughter so that her daughter can go to, you know, a decent school in Nepal, um, which Doma herself never had the opportunity to go to. She didn't get to go to school at all. You know, being here, doing it for them, but not being able to even see them, not being able to see your own child, that I just can't imagine. It's, It's really, really
4: tough. Hi, I'm Shraddha Ghali. I was born and raised in Nepal and went to college in the U.S. Individuals featured in our episode, uh, Dolma, who works as a nanny, and Pasang, who is a barber and a poet, both have found some things that they really value in America, like a job, an income, in- independence, you know, freedom, convenience. But each of them also carries a deep sense of loss um, that comes from having to leave the place where one grew up in and the people you love. So when Pasang says in his poem, When I got here, I, had, I thought I had won, but I had lost. I think um, it captures what many Nepali immigrants experience in this country. And that, of course, includes me. It's this um, sense of having won and lost at the same time.
6: One day I came back from the job and there was a paper on a table.
7: Saber was one of a number of Pakistanis who immigrated here thanks to the U.S. diversity program.
6: I got a lottery visa. I think I'm a lucky person. I figure out so much stuff in life.
7: A few years ago, Elia was living a fulfilling life in the vibrant and diverse city of Karachi. One day, a specific incident made her decide to leave.
4: When we came to US, like we don't have any family here. For the past five years, we are just celebrating our birthdays, our anniversaries, Eids, Muharram, everything, like just five of us.
7: For the Queen's Memory Podcast, I'm Saima Mohammed. I came to the U.S. in 2014, um, and I came from the U.K., um, I came from Scotland. I am third generation Indian, I guess, and second generation Pakistani um, because of partition. I think what attracted me was working on on stories that were in non-native English languages, which I had been trying to do more of in my work as well, but also that these were stories told from people's own perspectives and communities that we don't always hear a lot about. I've always thought about how Urdu is, you know, is something that, uh, like, connects me with a history and a roots that I am not necessarily always connected with because I speak or do with a Scottish accent, <laughs> it's not necessarily like you know, like somebody who's born and grew up there. So, I think there's always this journey with language and with one's roots and displacement and history, and there's this relationship that one is always interrogating. September 1st,
8: 2021. The remnants of Hurricane Ida swept through New York City.
5: Three bodies in a flooded basement inside of his apartment building were on the corner of Peck Avenue.
8: No one knew who they were. (laughs) Zhang Dechao, president of the Hubei Province Association, took it upon himself to find out. They
4: are not wandering on the street, but in
8: theory, they are invisible homeless. For the Queen's Memory Podcast, I am Stella Gu. Most of my work are related to Chinese community, um, about their achievements, issues, lifestyles. Before this, I was in Shanghai. I came to U.S. for school. My episode was a sad story. It's about a family drawn in an illegal basement apartment. So the whole interview was in a grieving mood. The most touching moment was when I heard their ashes were sent back to China in a cargo truck. Usually, the cargo truck needs to be fully loaded, but that truck was empty, except three cremation urns. As an immigrant, you know you must have a reason which made you leave your own country came to a strange place. Especially Mr. Lung came to U.S. when he was at his 50s. So I think there must be something good in America attracted him here. We call Mr. Leung and his family Invisible Homeless in this episode because they live in an illegal basement apartment. But we really don't want them become invisible. So I think this project can help them become part of Queen's Library's oral history. People will hear this story, will remember this family. The neighborhood rose
1: up around a roughly seven block stretch under the 7 train in Woodside. You'll know you're there when the doors open on the elevated train platform and you smell the Filipino barbecue.
4: I think people would just kind of say it under their breath, Little Manila, as a joke. And
6: then it became serious.
1: Last year, the New York City Council co-named the southwest corner of Roosevelt and 70th Street, Little Manila Avenue.
6: Filipinos are, what, the top
8: three in the country in terms of Asian American population. Can you Imagine it's 2021, and now we're getting uh, signed. I mean, it's very, very low ball.
0: I'm so happy with the Mabuhay, the co-naming of the street. But will that deter anyone who wants to abuse us? For
1: the Queen's Memory podcast, I'm Rosalind Tordesillas. So I was born and grew up in the Philippines, and I came here to the U.S. for grad school. Ever since I got into audio. I've been motivated to tell the stories of immigrants and my own community specifically. Filipinos, we have such a long history in the US, but we've been invisible. So because we were a colony of the US, and it's only in recent years that we've been really emboldened to step up and and, you know, sort of assert ourselves and, and be seen um, instead of just kind of blending into the background. One of the people that I really wished I could have included was um, someone named Hannah Serra. She was a high school student at the time when she helped paint the Mabuhay mural. Having grown up here, she wasn't so connected to her Filipino heritage. And, you know, she had struggles accepting um, this, this side of her and sometimes was even proud when people told her that she didn't look Filipino. Painting the mural, Hannah said, made her reflect on the significance of being Filipino and really appreciated her heritage more, um, especially during the pandemic when she became more aware of the contributions of Filipino healthcare workers and how they were so impacted by the pandemic. And actually, it, it really touched me afterwards.
6: Tenzin Doji lives in the neighborhood of Rigo Park with his wife and their two-year-old daughter. In 1992, when Tendo was just 13, his parents packed their bags and left India to resettle in America. I'll never forget the first day going to work in New York. I felt at home for the first time in my life because I grew up as an exile as a refugee my whole life. You know, like we were stateless growing up. At the time, there were around 10,000 Tibetans in the city. In many of the restaurants in Jackson Heights, you can see menus that are not just in English, but also in Tibetan. This freedom to be bilingual is incredibly important for Tendor and other Tibetans and queens, especially since the children back home are not being allowed to speak in their mother tongue. Our languages are under threat and targeted for eradication in its ancestral home. So that's really why you'll see Tibetan immigrants spending special amount of time worrying about how to pass on the language to our next generation. For Queens Memory Podcast, I am Tenzin Seten Chokle. My name is Tenzin Seten Chokle and I am a Tibetan-American filmmaker based in Queens. Before moving to the US, I grew up in North India in the Tibetan refugee community of Dharamsala, which is also the home of His Holiness the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan government in exile. My parents, they escaped Tibet to India in 1959, like many other Tibetans, and lived the remaining part of their lives in exile, never to see their homeland again. When I first heard about this project, I immediately felt how meaningful and novel an idea this is, and at the same time how extremely important it is to do such work. As someone belonging to a minority community here in the US, one always struggles with the questions of identity, language and finding a sense of belonging. Despite being Asian, I am someone who has quite a negative take on the term Asian American because it always felt like painting with a broad brush. But through these interviews, honestly, I've had quite a change of mind. One of the guests I spoke to mentioned how we as Asian Americans or new immigrants in this country do not have much shared memories that ties us together. And it very well may be one of the reasons why it's difficult for many of us to identify ourselves as Asian Americans. We all come from different cultures, different languages and different experiences. But over the last two years, with many incidences of racially induced crimes against Asian Americans, we realize that these attackers do not discriminate. As long as you look a certain way, you are considered an outsider worthy of attack. So in a lot of ways it makes sense and also it's important to be grouped together and to be working together to champion our causes, but with respect to the diversity that each of our communities bring in. And to add to that, I also feel like the banner holders of Asian American groups also need to be more inclusive, you know, and put extra effort in reaching out to all communities despite size, rather than for just focusing on larger immigrant communities. And this would make the idea so much richer and so much more meaningful.
4: I came to US 50 years ago. I have mostly lived in Jackson Heights, New York.
9: Nirmal's daughter, Sonia, describes how her relationship with Queens evolved as she grew older.
7: And he told me that he moved to Jackson Heights because it was a gay neighborhood. Wait, Jackson Heights is a gay neighborhood? I thought it was a South Asian neighborhood. It was really through working in Queens that I started to learn more about Queens.
9: Sonia's partner, Rekha Malhotra, popularly known as DJ Rekha, curating, promoting and DJing in the New York nightlife scene starting in the 80s.
5: States, it's very problematic how we define Indian as Hindu culture. I'm always resisting that. No religious images, no elephants, no none of that stuff. Good afternoon,
0: everyone, my name is i come to you here all the way from Eastern...
9: While Justine's campaign energized a multi-ethnic, intergenerational base, Young organisers came out in overwhelming numbers to support her vision of local government. Drashti Brahmat shares how her own journey inspired her to become one of Jisleen's fiercest advocates.
2: There was a lot of things in my childhood that growing up I couldn't have the vocabulary to describe. And the way she talked about it, you know, brought tears to my eyes. We created this direct link between different generations in East Queens.
9: For the Queens Memory Podcast, I'm Indranil Choudhury. My name is Indraneev Chaudhary. I am from India and I moved to New York uh, in August 2019 to join a Media Arts program at Hunter College. Doing the Hindi episode comes with its opportunities and challenges. There are sort of controversial aspects to expecting that everybody in India speak Hindi. That's a common misconception and, and I definitely wanted to avoid that. I didn't want to offend anybody by suggesting that they should be able to speak hindi and just navigating that issue was an interesting challenge and it ended up involving people you know who speak punjabi gujarati uh, malayali bengali and who all also speak hindi to varying degrees so that was really interesting one of the trickier parts of having a sense of community within South Asians is the fact that there are so many varied experiences, uh, both in terms of nationalities, so an Indian or Bangladeshi or Pakistani, Sri Lankan uh, would all have very different experiences of uh, being here. There are also class differences within uh, each of those communities, so trying to be open about that when doing my interviews, talking to people about it, talking to people who work in politics and organizing and are aware of these differences in experiences and experiences and the challenges of having to speak for a community at large. I think I learned a lot. It almost kind of feels like I have gotten to know more about my own history as a result of talking to people and learning about their experiences in this context. <laughs>
10: This is Nazneen Shimon. She's a poet, a translator, a teacher, a resident of Queens, and a proud immigrant from Bangladesh. And like many Bengalis, she believes Bangla is a very special language. Not only the sweetest language, Bengali is the seventh most spoken language in the world. As more and more Bengalis immigrated to Queens, the culture flourished. Schools formed to teach Bangla language and culture to the kids. Journalist and UN official Hassan Fredos saw it as a way to strengthen the roots of Bengali immigrants.
6: Exile, no matter how beautiful it is, is when you are cut off from your roots. And when roots are cut off, the tree gradually dies. And we felt that, yes, deep inside, we were dying. And this was a way for us to rejuvenate ourselves.
10: For Queen's Memory Podcast... I'm Trisha Mukherjee. Immigration has been in my family, immigration and migration, for the past few generations. My grandparents, during the 1947 partition of India, um, they crossed the border. So that was a very violent migration. Then more recently, my parents immigrated to the U.S. in the 1980s, and so I grew up just hearing about their stories, figuring out a country that was foreign to them. And I really value all these experiences in my family's history and I think it's a big part of what uh, informs my identity today. My episode is centered around language and in the Bengali community, uh, language means a lot to us. I was just struck by the absolute you know, dedication and love that my interviewees have had for the Bangla language. My parents are the immigrant generation, and so I often hear them speak Bengali to me, but I sometimes I don't respond in Bangla. I just thought after speaking to Nazneen that I would really love my future children to speak Bangla. So then I started practicing it more, and I started reading and writing it more, which I haven't really done too much before. I hope to just keep preserving all these stories. I think it's really important um, to not let these voices just fade away in history. And I think recording these stories is also urgent in the sense that if we wait too long, they may disappear all the little details and nuances.
2: Preserving and presenting these little details and nuances in context is what brought us all together. It's what animates our mission at Queen's Memory. And reflecting on the producer's individual experiences, it's the stuff that makes stories worth telling. For Queen's Memory Podcast, I'm Melody Tao.
0: The Queen's Memory Podcast is a production of The Queen's Memory Project. For full transcripts and show notes from this episode, visit queensmemory.org. This episode was produced by Melody Tao in conjunction with Anna Williams and Natalie Milbrot. Mixing and editing by Corey Choi with music composed by Elias Raven. This podcast has been made possible in part by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Democracy Demands Wisdom. Queens Memory is an ongoing community archiving program by the Queens Public Library and Queens College CUNY. The view's findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this episode are those of its creators and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of National Endowment for the Humanities, Queen's Public Library, the City University of New York, or their employees. I'm Jiefei Yuan. Thank you for listening.